Hello, and thanks for listening to this episode of Healthcare 360, our podcast from BILH. I'm Rob Fields. I'm the Chief Clinical Officer for the system. And I'm very excited to have Dr. Sharon Wright with me today as a colleague and a new friend in the system, a Chief Infection Prevention Officer. But thanks for joining us, Sharon. Thanks for having me. A lot of folks don't actually know what your role does and what it is. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to be in this role and what it is exactly? Sure. So I'm a healthcare epidemiologist, which probably isn't any more interpretable. <laughs> and I started my training in infectious diseases. That's actually what brought me up to Boston initially. And after completing that fellowship, I did a second fellowship in health services research uh, and got my master's of public health to get more experience in working with epidemiology and statistics in healthcare settings. Okay. From there, I started as associate hospital epidemiologist at Beth Israel Hospital, eventually became um, hospital epidemiologist or medical director of the department during the pandemic, wound up starting first unofficially and then officially in my current role as chief infection prevention officer for the system. I imagine, I mean, certainly it was true for you, but for others, the role of a chief infection prevention officer really dramatically changed as a result of the pandemic? Is that fair to say? Or did it evolve? In my case, I didn't even officially start in it until the pandemic really got going. I came up unofficially to the system level to help with COVID in particular, mm -hmm. um, helping across the system to have standardized guidance and to help hospitals that may not have as much expertise in outbreak management, especially with emerging infections. But mm -hmm. COVID is just like with every part of healthcare and really every part of life has impacted <laughs> day to day. Right. Um, there weren't as many, I think, people in roles like me at the system level across the country, mm -hmm. really. And after COVID, I think many healthcare systems have realized that there's a need for roles like these. Yeah. Before we get into what we want to talk about today, I am a little curious what your role was like in 2019. Like, what kinds of things were you doing? And now, post-ish, the pandemic, what does that look like now? And how is it different, if at all? So in some ways, it's similar to what I did in 2019, just on a larger scale. But in 2019, our focus was largely in preventing infections in our patients, mm -hmm. our visitors, and our staff. And so we did that through surveillance uh, routinely for infections, particularly healthcare-associated infections and device-associated infections, working up what might be potential clusters and determining if there is an issue or not, proactively trying to make the environment safe, both in the clinical environment as well as the supporting areas that support the clinical operations. And so that part, we are we never really stopped, but we right. had less bandwidth for. But I think my role has continued to start to focus back on that more today. You know, I think during COVID, obviously, when you have limited people in the field who are trained in this and limited people who can work in healthcare, then mm -hmm. you have to focus more on the, the immediate issues, which was the pandemic. Right. Maybe a different day we can talk about whether or not you think there'll be another one of these or some other thing <laughs> we'll have to contend with. Or uh, if this one's really gone Or away. if this one's really gone. That's why I said ish earlier. I was trying to qualify myself here a little bit. But what I was hoping we would spend our time talking about today is really the, the larger goal and what I feel like is a implied, if not always explicit, compact with our patients that safety and having a place where you can get care and we won't give you something that you don't want in return. There's definitely a, a promise that we make really to our patients, again, in, implied or explicit. And getting there is really hard for lots of reasons. When you first got into this role, how did you think about solving that or trying to address that promise that we make or fulfill that promise we make? And how has your thinking evolved over this time? 
You know, it's interesting because infection prevention, a lot of us in the field would say, was was really the origins of healthcare quality. And so, you know, we were always thinking about these kind of issues and how to make hospitals safer and keep patients free of infection. And not, I don't know that everyone was always paying attention or listening. You know, the field started in the 70, early 70s. Mm-hmm. And so I think over time, you know, with mandatory reporting of some healthcare-associated infections, a lot of attention got drawn to it. But it really is with a not a very refined look the way an epidemiologist would look at it, because mm-hmm. I think just reporting them is probably not enough. There's a lot more nuance to preventing them, which is, I think, what you're getting at. Yeah. And I think the problem is, are, are healthcare-associated infections entirely preventable? Because sometimes the way that we provide care to patients unfortunately puts them at risk for infections. So sometimes we need new technologies, new devices, and ways to provide better care. But what we try to do in infection prevention is to help our clinical staff make things as safe as they can to prevent infections in the ways that we know are available and evaluate every infection as if it were, was it potentially preventable or not? And if we can find things that we can do better, then to move forward with those and also to try to think outside the box um, to put in other preventative measures and to do research in ways that we can try to help nationally do better in preventing infections. Right. Can we take a comment you made that I think is really interesting? Maybe this is an ongoing debate in your in your world is our all infections preventable or hospital-acquired infections preventable. And you, you said something that the very nature of the way that we take care of patients sometimes lends itself to some level of risk. What's an example so people can ground into what you're talking sure. about? Sure. So I think at its most basic, you know, when you put in an indwelling vascular catheter, for example, you are piercing the skin, which is a natural way. So just a catheter way, going into a just blood vessel. Just the catheter going Sorry, into a blood a, vessel, right, is, is piercing the skin. One of the best ways that we provide innate immunity, right, protection from infection, because your skin is a barrier that can pretty effectively, when it's intact, keep bacteria mm-hmm. out of places it doesn't belong. So a bacteria that we all have on our skin, no matter how well we wash, if it gets into the wrong place, like into a bloodstream, it can cause a very serious infection. And so that's what we try to prevent. Those are called catheter-associated bloodstream infections or CLABSIs. And we try to prevent those every way that we can think of. And there's a lot of published literature on how to do that. But you know, just by piercing someone's skin, sometimes you're putting them at a risk, but that risk is a calculated one because you need to give them therapies right. that they need to get better. Maybe another example would be during COVID, you know, we were intentionally trying to protect our patients. And so we gave them more of those types of catheters. We gave them urinary catheters and things to monitor them better. We placed them sometimes on their stomachs or prone to help them breathe better. That may be put them at different risks for pneumonias. And so all these things we did to protect them from one thing may have put them at risk for something else. And at the same time, we were trying to protect our staff. So, you know, things that we wouldn't normally do, like longer IV tubing, to put it outside the room so that nurses could change medications for patients without having to enter the room as many times, but could still watch the patient Mm -hmm. and give them the medication they need, maybe put them at higher risk for certain types of infections. So it's not that we do all of these things unknowingly, but it's a balance of risks. Because unfortunately, I think medicine is never going to be risk-free. Right. By extension, I guess the very nature of the fact that we have humans caring for humans, right, it's already a, a risk to some degree, right? We all are vectors of some sort of 
something or another. Is that is that fair? Is that overstating? I, I, I think that is fair. I think those are some of the things that we try to prevent through best right. practices and education for staff. But it's definitely true, you know. And I think those are risks that we take. And back when we first started reporting healthcare-associated infections and when they garnered a lot of attention, there were many, many more infections. And so as we developed evidence-based practices to prevent infection, the numbers are now really low. So I think the other question is some of these things that we're reporting, like these catheter-associated bloodstream infections, as the numbers get really small, are there other things that we should be looking at rather than just sustaining these? Should we be reporting on different things and doing research about how to prevent other types of infections that impact our patients? Do you think, to get hyper-philosophical here, but I imagine there are going to be folks listening that are not clinical, maybe even not directly affiliated with the operations of a hospital or a healthcare setting. And I'm going to imagine that at least some segment of the population is thinking, well, that's not that's not really the promise, right? The fact that we might accept some level of infection is not really what I was bargaining for. I think you and I have both been in the history long enough to know there's a lot of gray. It's never exactly, to your point, risk-free. It's usually not a decision of good versus bad. There's a, a lot of pros and cons. It's an exchange more than anything. But again, I'm not sure that all consumers agree with that promise. How do you, if you could design or communicate it differently, you know, if you had the idea of a fully informed consent, what would that conversation with the patient look like? That's tricky, right? And I, I guess I don't want to communicate that I'm willing to accept risk. <laughs> I, I think we're trying to we're trying to mitigate <laughs> risk as much as we can with every known way to prevent infections. Mm-hmm. I think the problem is is that we just don't know, right? Have we reached the limits of what we can do with antiseptic impregnated dressings and and, you know, silver-coated catheters and, you know, checklists and all kinds of things that we yeah. put in place. I, I don't want folks who are listening to think that we don't put heroic efforts in to try Absolutely. to prevent right. infections. And if I go into the hospital at some point for some sort of, like, elective hip replacement, I sure hope I come out without <laughs> an infection. But I think we have to be clear with patients when they come in that that risk, however low it is, and we try to make it as low as possible, which would hopefully be 1%, less than 1%, but that it's not zero. And depending on who you are, meaning what your medical history is, what kind of medications you're on that may reduce the ability of your immune system to fight infections, what other procedures are happening at the same time that may increase your risk, Mm -hmm. that we may not be able to ever get that risk completely to zero. Now, sometimes for some procedures, it's easier than others. And, Mm -hmm. you know, some things are less invasive. But I think communicating that risk in a way that patients can understand um, and understand that we're also doing our very best to prevent it. So that all makes sense. In the framework of people process and technology kinds of things, can we talk a little bit about how you approach each of those and to get to the goals that you have set for the system, starting with maybe, you know, people? Like, what are the, the people parts of the job to try to get us moving ever closer to that limit of approaching zero, using a calculus sort of terminology. What are the people? Is it education? What What is it? So there's many different parts. I think the most important people are obviously those closest to the patient, and mm-hmm. those are our frontline staff. You know, There have been lots of shortages of frontline staff at all different professional staff types during the pandemic and mm-hmm. before the pandemic, unfortunately. And so we've had a lot of temporary staff, traveling staff, and a new staff coming in. And so they all need to be trained. And so the more that we can standardize our processes, standardize our education, 
organization, especially as we become more and more of a system mm-hmm. and patients and staff go back and forth between different facilities, the more that they don't have to relearn something every time they come in for a shift, whether that's what antibiotics are on formulary, what types of catheters they have to use to insert, mm-hmm. you know, what type of hand hygiene product they should be using. I mean, the list goes on and on. Right. The easier we can make it, and then I think the, the, the better our outcomes will be. And then the types of education. I think we're learning that everyone learns differently. So during the pandemic and when I came to the system level, I tried to put out education in multiple different ways. So short 30 to 60 second videos, things that people can read on their phone or a mobile device, PowerPoint presentations that people could look at if they have more time. So things to try to get to people in different ways, posters that can be put up in break rooms so that it's not just kind of a a one and done, an education that reinforces over time. So communication with campaigns around education during the pandemic that would go out over carefully planned over a six week window about personal protective equipment Mm -hmm. and how to use it, for example. Mm -hmm. It's just interesting how all these learning science kind of blends into right the real change on the I'm going to skip process once I can go to technology. You mentioned a few things just in passing, some of the new technologies that are out in terms of dressings and prep and things like that. But anything you want to highlight in terms of either fairly new technologies or emerging technologies that I think help the cause in some way? So there are definitely new technologies in the way that we can track infections, because I think some of the things that have come up in recent years is as there are more and more pay for performance metrics and metrics to track for public reporting, which is important. Mm -hmm. It takes infection preventionists, so the the often nurses or masters in public health micro technologists who are trained in infection prevention and do the surveillance for infections, they spend more and more time tied to their computers rather than being able to get to the floor to work with frontline staff on education and finding ways to prevent infection. And so the more that we can use technologies to help them find these infections faster and have more time free for other important work and quality improvement, the better. Uh, I think technologies in preventing infection are important, you know, whether they're copper impregnated services, ways to clean the air better, you know, I think disposable curtains, you know, better ways to clean hands or UV ways to clean equipment. And then of course, the new devices that are, are are able to be either antiseptic impregnated, like certain dressings. You know, those are those are right. all important. But I think there's so many more that are out there. And are there ways that we can use even machine learning to help us detect infections? Or maybe even more importantly, when a patient comes in based on their medical history that's in the electronic record, are there certain keywords that we can find or characteristics of a patient that we know that they're at higher risk of acquiring a certain type of infection so we can put additional protections in place to try to prevent that infection from developing in the first place? What kind of example would you give of that? That's kind of that's so you know we know that you know patients coming from sometimes who have traveled in other countries, patients coming from certain types of skilled nursing facilities, maybe patients with certain medical conditions that they may be at more risk for highly resistant organisms. And so, are there things that we can put into place? There are things called enhanced barrier precautions. So, you know, we wear gowns and gloves for treating them so that we're less likely to pass it on. Mm -hmm. Are there prophylactic medications that we can give? Should we be using special antiseptic soaps for bathing them more frequently, similar to what we do in a critical care unit? Right. Um, So are there things that we can identify uh, so that we don't pass things around in the hospital or to patients? You've mentioned so many things that are part of that last category of process. It feels like to me in our discussions that so much of our ability to impact the, and get to the impact the prevention of infections and get to our goals is so process oriented and reliable processes. And it also strikes me that where we are and speaking specifically about BILH as a system, as a new system that's still trying to figure out, and you alluded to some of this different 
products, processes, people, you know, policies, procedures, et cetera, and we're trying to bring that all together. How have you approached that that part of your job, given where we are as a system, and what are the additional complexities you found in trying to do that? I think I spent the large part of the first six months really just trying to listen, to meet people, to do site visits, because you know I've spent most of my career in academic centers. And so trying to get a better sense of what happens in our community hospitals, what happens in our assisted living, how do we prevent infections there, to better understand what our staff are dealing with in a day-to-day so that we can best protect them and protect the patients they're caring for, I think was really important. Mm And then working with all of my teams at all of the hospitals in particular to try to hear about their opinions, what they see in the day-to-day, why their processes are different sometimes than even either national recommendations or slight differences from each other, and trying to come together so that we can all understand those differences, try to move away from the ones that are just historical because we've done it that way for the last decade, and then move together for best practice, review the evidence together, and then make decisions together. Can you feel progress? I do. I think COVID actually helped accelerate the progress, Mm -hmm. um, at least with my teams internally in infection prevention, because Mm -hmm. we just didn't have the bandwidth. We had to work together. It was on one topic, and it probably helped that no one had guidance on it already. So we worked together to try to develop that. And I think it was a good trust-building exercise. It helped me understand the incredible strength in all of our teams that I think was way more than I could have expected. So that was really nice. And getting to know each other in a crisis always accelerates those uh, relationship building. And then I think, you know, we we have then built trust that we can go off of and we've been able to prioritize together the work and we've created subgroups to bring ideas together and then bring them back to the full group so that I'm not even involved in all of the work and all of the subgroups. And then they we come together and they present the data and we make decisions together in group meetings. So that's been really nice to see as that's yeah, grown. I bet. Part of the vision, if you will, for this podcast is to try to at least address the challenges that we get, that we have in healthcare from all sorts of different areas and and at least maybe not solve them, but at least try to communicate how we think about them as system leaders, especially in this system specifically, but in the industry broadly. And I'm wondering from your point of view and the work that you're trying to get done here, and we have the macro trends of Increasing costs in healthcare, shrinking margins, workforce challenges, and, and excess of demand relative to the supply of caregivers that we have across the system. How have you seen that impact your goals professionally? And hopefully with a layer of optimism, how might you think about addressing those? It's a there's hard a question. Lot to unpack there's a there. lot there. Yeah. <laughs> I think that there's the the microscopic answer where if I'm just looking right at my teams, you know, infection prevention was a field that not a lot of people were going into over time and was kind mm-hmm. of aging out. So there mm-hmm. were a lot of retirements even before COVID hit. Mm-hmm. So developing a pipeline has been kind of a pet interest of mine, both on the physician side, so for the medical directors in the field, and then also for the infection preventionists working with local nursing schools and finding the development of career ladders and focused training for infectious diseases diseases fellows to get more people into the field. When I think about the bigger picture in healthcare, that's definitely harder. I think some of the things we talked about, like developing education that can be just in time and developing really almost infection prevention liaisons on medical units so that there are people who are 
kind of local experts and who have eyes and ears on the ground who can help raise issues as they occur rather than waiting for us to discover them and who can also help with education so that it's not all resting on, you know, sometimes one infection preventionist for an entire hospital. And if something happens or they get distracted by something like a pandemic, then you can see nationally when healthcare associated infections started rising. And I'm not saying that that's all on the infection prevention teams, but I think it shows that when we run this lean, we can lose the gains of a decade in, in just a few months. Just sort of highlights the idea that it requires constant energy, right? Well, the forces are always moving to create entropy, right, and disorganize. And there's a high degree of vigilance that's required and ongoing energy, right, to maintain the goals that, that we've made. Um, I'm hoping that it becomes less person-specific. You know, if you think mm-hmm. about the intern or hospitalist rounding and they have to think about, you know, 10 different checklists just related to infection prevention, you know, is their urinary catheter still needed? Do they still need their central venous catheter? Right. You know, and so on and so on. And, you know, does this patient still need precautions? That's just on top of all of their other work. If we can come up with automated ways to put this in front of them, to remind them who has these devices, to have mm-hmm. indications programmed in. So I have a lot of hope for our new electronic record record mm-hmm. over the next couple of years to both help standardize work and help make it easier for healthcare personnel to do the right thing. Yeah. With less effort and less brain power. Right. Certainly when it's the easier thing to do, right? It, it happens more naturally. And it leaves them more bandwidth for the things that are so important, both mm-hmm. spending time with patients and thinking about how they can help get the patient better instead right. of trying to remember all of the boxes <laughs> they were supposed right. to check. That's right, exactly. Sharon, one of the things we didn't talk about but is also under your scope is stewardship, which is, you know, a different take. We spent most of our time today talking about preventing infections, but the once you have them, then there's an appropriate treatment, and that's also really complicated. And Can you talk a little bit about that part of your role generally and some of the specific ways you try to address it, both on the delivery side, but then, you know, what, what can patients do? Sure. So I think of infection prevention as the things we've talked about with surveillance and putting in protective measures, particularly around devices. There's so many parts with the environment. But this piece is really preventing the development of resistant organisms and the transmission of them in the healthcare setting and in the community by the way that we prescribe and use antibiotics. And so antibiotic or antimicrobial stewardship is really the way that we use those anti-infective drugs to treat patients and also importantly, the way that we don't use them. And so, you know, things like a viral infection like COVID, for example, or like the common cold is not effectively treated with an antibiotic. Mm -hmm. Although I think oftentimes when patients aren't feeling well, they naturally want a medication and unfortunately, most viruses we don't have medications right. for, though some we do. I have family members that push hard and <laughs> they call the doctor every time they have a cold. And so the other thing is it's important to take antibiotics exactly as they're prescribed. So, you know, if you should finish a course of antibiotics as it's prescribed by your treating clinician. And then if you don't finish them for some reason and there's some left over, you shouldn't randomly take them when you think you're getting sick and you shouldn't share them with other family members because, you know, that's how you develop resistance is when you take partial doses. And so we don't want to take too much, but we want to take enough to clear out an infection. And so some of the things that my teams in antimicrobial stewardship do is they track the usage of infections, Mm -hmm. daily doses of different medications that are used. We track resistant organisms in the hospital. We look how we treat specific ones. We try to develop standardized guidance for our clinicians so that they are using evidence-based practices in treating our patients. Does the concept of resistance make you nervous just as human and not necessarily <laughs> even in healthcare, just as, you know, as a potential consumer of healthcare? And what makes you nervous about that? Or how nervous are you? 
Well, you know, some resistant organisms are cause more invasive infections than others, but not all of them do. But, you know, if we get, I think, what's probably in the lay press called superbugs, things that are resistant to all antibiotics that are out there currently, and there aren't that many more antibiotics in the pipeline, unfortunately, then we run out of ways to treat patients. Right. And so we, we don't want those kind of infections spreading in hospitals, those kind of bacteria. And so that's why infection prevention teams and antibiotic steward teams are so closely tied together because one tries to prevent these infections from developing in the first place and the other one tries to stop them from spreading. And so, sure, it's scary, but for most of them, they're not resistant to all antibiotics. That's pretty rare. And so we do have things to treat often not oral things to treat with. And so then those patients wind up in the hospital or in in settings. It's just more complicated or at home with IV therapy. So we just want to stop those things from transmitting because we can eventually run out of options, especially for patients who may have compromised immune systems or in and out of the hospital a lot who may need a lot of antibiotic therapy, and then that may drive resistance. If you could magically communicate to all patients, is there something that you would want to say to them this on a macro level that supports your goals professionally? I think to know that we are on their side, that we are working hard to help them prevent infection, but we want their voices too. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that they are so vitally important. Oftentimes we leave so much up to the patient and I try not to do that, but if they're able and willing to speak up, you know, that that most of us even the chief of a department will not mind if you remind them to clean their hands or if you didn't see them and you ask them again. You know, healthcare providers get busy. And if they forget something or if you need something to speak up and advocate for yourself because you're part of the care team. And sometimes you see things that we don't. Yeah, that's that's super helpful. Thanks for your time, Sharon. Thanks for joining us today and, and sharing with us your wisdom and learnings over the last few years, especially through the pandemic. And really appreciate what you do. Thanks so much. This was fun. And if folks have ideas for future podcasts, please leave, uh, leave comments on social media. And thanks for listening.